Hi everybody, it is Nick Bradley here. Welcome to today's episode. Before I introduce our amazing guest, just a quick mention that I have just written a guide, a 40-page guide to why your business will never get to eight figures and how to fix it fast. Now, it's a exploration, let's call it, of my time in private equity where I was doing turnarounds and scale-ups and I wrote the guide because people ask me all the time, particularly people who are at that sort of high six, seven figure mark, what can they be doing in their business if they wanna get that eight figures, if they wanna to build to an exciting exit one day, what do they need to do? So I thought, you know what, there's five things. So if you want a copy of that guide, just um, come to me at LinkedIn and let me know, or you can come and join our community on Facebook, which is Build Your Business Empire. Join that community and just let me know there that you'd like a copy of the guide and we'll make sure that you get it. So back to today, you are in for a treat because my guest today is James Aldercher. Now, James is a hedge fund manager in the US. He's the author of, get this, 25 books and a contributor to the Financial Times and the Huffington Post. But deep down, he is really an entrepreneur who has co-founded more than 20 companies. But here's the catch. 17 out of those 20 companies have failed. So why am I sharing all of this about James? Because he is a believer that anyone who is successful has probably experienced an extraordinary amount of failure in their life. But for him, he hasn't allowed this failure to slow him down at all. And his big message is, it shouldn't slow you down either. Failure is the pathway to success. Failure sucks. I do have regrets. Like I wish I had not failed so many times. So today we talk about the different types of entrepreneurship and the impact that they have had on the world. Really love this conversation. We even dive a little bit into my old world, if you call it that, of private equity. You know, all the experiences I had there. We talk about how allowing yourself to enjoy things should dictate where you invest your energy and so much more. What do you love doing? Simple as that. You have to try a lot of things to know what you love doing. So there we have it. Without further ado, welcome to the podcast, Mr. James Altucher, and welcome to Scale Up for this week, everybody. Entrepreneurship is different from investing. People put it in this one big category business. And people put entrepreneurship in one big category, entrepreneurship, but there's, I could own a laundromat or yeah. I could start a space exploration company. Like there's different types of entrepreneurship and private equity investing. There's also different kinds. Like I could invest in a company at six times earnings and, yeah. you know, and no one else is willing to invest. So I get a good deal, of course, because I'm, I'm investing for investors, but I also want to help and build the company or there's private equity where. And like in many kind of hedge funds and venture capital funds, you have to be careful if you're an investor. There's the kind of private equity where you um, invest and then you mark up the value of your investment and then you go raise fund two before this investment. Oh, man. The great thing about private equity is you don't return the money to investors for like 10 to 15 years. Were you, were you sitting in the boardroom that I was in back in 2017? I've sat in a lot of those boardrooms. <laughs> and, and the private equity investors, I saw one deal the private equity investor marked it up 500% after they restructured the company because oh, yeah. they just gave themselves all these warrants. Then they ran out and raised $600 million for fund number two. Their first fund was like 150 million. Yep. So they raised 600 million based on the performance. 
And then the day after they raised that money, the company they had marked up what declared bankruptcy the day after. Like there wasn't uh, even it wasn't even like a month after where they could say, oh, we had no idea the day after they raised the money and their pitch book said, oh, we're up 500 percent in this investment, which they just it's just marked to imagination. Like they don't it doesn't it wasn't really up, but it was in the way they mathematically modeled it. And but I mean, as you said, though, right, there's different types of private equity as there's different types of everything. Right. And I've been involved in both. Right. And so you've got some that are more let's say focused on the, the intention behind what an investor has put money into, you know, to achieve. Sometimes that's obviously impact as well as it is the financial growth. But I've also been on the side of the table where, you know, a PE firm has four partners. They're getting a million bucks each a year just to have a management fee. They're not that worried about the carry of any of their deals. They then go raise fund two. And, you know, there's all this deployment of capital back into businesses, which actually isn't really serving the investors who have come in in the first place. So I've seen both sides of that coin. <laughs> no, it's, 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 it's insane. And, and to be honest, you know, I've been an entrepreneur and I've also been a private equity investor and a VC investor. And I really dislike investing just because a it's, it's boring. Like all, <laughs> I'm not talking about stock market investing, which is also a different kind of game, Yeah. but, uh, and I call it a game because all, I don't mean it in a bad way. All these things are games where there's rules and you want to win the game and, and you're, and there's competition. And so, uh, with, with venture capital investing all day long, people are coming into the office and they have a chart which says, oh, we're at zero in revenue now. But once we sell to one out of 10 people in China, we're going to have a trillion dollars in revenue. So there's like always a half smiley face going to the moon and you have to decide whether it's true or not. And you invest. And it's so boring. Whereas entrepreneurship is is and you 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 call you you use the word impact before. But I don't like separating out entrepreneurship from impact uh, entrepreneurship. I think it's all the same. I think the word and, and sorry if I'm going off on what seems like a tangent, but I'll, I'll bring it back. I think the it's word okay. capitalism is a very bad word because a most people don't know this. It was a word that was invented by Karl Marx. It was in it was in um, you know his main the Communist Manifesto, whatever whatever the name, real name of that book was, and he he basically um, distinguished between the 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 people who are the workers and the people whose only goal is to accumulate capital, and he called that capitalism. And I think our society is not a or shouldn't be a capitalist society. It's an, it's really an innovationist society. So the, the people who are rewarded the most are coming up with innovations. And they, they have the, the, the skill to have the idea that's innovative. They have the skill to execute on it. They have the skill to market it. They have the skill to, to monetize it. And that's how society grows. And so every good entrepreneur is an impact entrepreneur. Amazon I was going to say, do you think that's a better do you think that's a better definition of entrepreneurship, the way you just described it? Absolutely. Because even if I was going to buy, so let's say there's two, two main types of entrepreneurship. There's the kind where nine out of 10 businesses fail. Like if I wanted to make up my own rocket company to explore space, maybe <laughs> I have a 1% chance of succeeding. Or if I see the busiest laundromat on the busiest corner in New York City and I buy it because the owner is about to die and he wants to sell and retire to Florida, uh, I buy it for three times EBITDA. And then I have some ideas, you know, I'll serve drinks and make it into a disco at night. Um, or a nightclub, whatever. Disco feels like an old word, but uh, uh, <laughs> I'm an old guy, you know, mate. I, I still use the word disco. Um, <laughs> but, but but I'm still in each case. I'm trying to solve. Like that has a hundred percent chance or an eighty percent chance of success. It's not true that most entrepreneurs fail. Most entrepreneurs are the laundromat owners of the world, and 
You know, it's so funny. It's, it's almost as if, right? Like, you know, again, like you've, you've read my bloody book or listened to my podcast because that's all I do these days. I go and buy businesses like that because I'm, I'm a bit old school. I like to buy good profitable businesses that are, you know, under leveraged or undervalued, depending on how you describe that, right? For whatever reason, you know, someone's had it for a period of time and they've done what they can with it or they've lost the impetus to continue. And I just invest everything I do into that. That's all I do. And it's kind of a private equity play, but it's yeah, not. No, I like the, that. And are you, how personally involved? Oh, this is the other thing about private equity investing. So I'm curious of your, your thing. Sure. Like a lot of private equity investors say they get involved in the business and they help improve it. And I like that aspect of private equity. Just for me personally, I, I didn't, when I was doing that and I was serving on a lot of boards of companies, I didn't enjoy it because usually if I saw a problem, the CEO wouldn't agree with me. And yeah. sometimes I was right, sometimes I was wrong and I would listen to the CEO and so on. But there's one time, I was really right. This I said to the CEO, you have six months of money left. And he's like, oh, don't worry. We're going to raise money in three months. And I said, no, no, you don't understand. You're already out of business. <laughs> you're, it's too late. Six months is the minimum time to raise money from the point where you're at. By the time a check is actually sent to you, people are going to see you have two weeks left. You're not going to get the terms you think you're going to get. So I had to call all the board together, convince each one of them. And against the CEO's will, we put the company up for business. He made 12, we sold it the day he was going to not make payroll to the day I was accurate. This is the most wow. accurate I've ever been. To the day I was accurate, he was not going to make payroll. That day he sold the business, he made $12 million and he hates me for it. Like it he was, hates you it for it. No, you saved, I didn't even have, you saved the business enough, though, didn't I you? didn't really have that much invested in this either. But you saved the business then by that insight. I mean, yes. you know, because he would have kept going and he would have had nothing. I mean, that happens a lot, right? I've been involved in many of those. He would have had nothing and he hates my guts oh. right now. Oh, well, he's, he's going to have to send you a Christmas card or something like that. <laughs> you know, I've seen that happen once. A friend of mine helped sell businesses in 1999. And the next day, somebody who made, a, you know, someone who had put in $50,000 and made a million sent my friend a, literally a gift wrapped Porsche that was parked outside of his house when he woke up in the morning. Well, that might be and you I've one day. I've helped a lot of people make a lot of money. I have yet to receive one thank you. <laughs> so, so to your question before, I, I wasn't the um, the MBA spreadsheet jockey. Like I wasn't that guy. I was the operational guy that went into businesses, often as interim or CEO to do the turnaround. So private wow. equity firms would bring me in when they'd had an investment go underwater and they'd say, Nick, we want, you, we want you to get it back firstly to what we bought it for, if that's possible, right? Sometimes it was a long way gone uh, and then stick around bring back or build, rebuild the management team to then take it to the next stage. So I was that guy. I was in the in the weeds of a lot of dealing with people, problems, process, product, all that sort of stuff. And I quite enjoyed it because I was I was kind of in there fixing problems. But after yeah, a while, I think I think I think that's a good path too because you only become a better investor if you if you know how to be a good operator. Because yeah. then you know it's not about numbers, it's about a lot more subtle things than just oh our EBITDA went up last year. You don't know what that means. That that means a lot of different things. Like, and you know, the best private equity investors, like take Henry Kravis, who's the, the second K of KKR. Yep. And um, he retired, he, didn't his, he, today? Something like, didn't I read something today about his, was that today? Oh, oh no. That's it was something I thought today, well, he either, but something happened today. I could be, it could have been recently, but wow. anyway, no, he's a very, he's, he's like one of the most famous sort of PE M&A guys around. Yeah. I, um, he invested in a company I started a long time ago. He lost his money on it, but um yeah, he they they retired. He retired. It's funny. I haven't oh, said that's his so name funny because I thought I saw like, it today. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I haven't said his name out loud in like fifteen years. And like, yeah, you're right. He's in the news today. But his his as soon as he joined 
Kohlberg's company, you know, Kohlberg is the first K, Jerome Kohlberg. He, uh, uh, Henry Kravitz is the first thing for a year and a half. He went to Connecticut in some crappy little company that was going under and he turned it around. And that's how you learn to be a good private equity investor. Wow. So for, for context of anyone listening to this, right the way, we've just kind of gone straight into a fun conversation, which I love, by the way. Um, but James is sitting there saying, you know, doesn't like investing. You know, he's been a successful investor <laughs> and had hedge funds and all sorts of stuff. Just again, people may not know who you are. Um, so it's quite refreshing and colorful for you to go straight into it <laughs> in this way. But what, can I just ask the question, though? When you said you, you don't like, I may, may have got this not 100% right, you don't like investing or there's some different nuances around investing. What do you mean by that? Well, okay, I should take it back a little bit. I don't like being involved in the company anymore. Okay. Like the fact that I had to throw, put so much, like that one company I mentioned, I had to put so much work in just to help this guy who was kicking and screaming every step of the way. That's not, a, you know, I spent six months of my life or maybe even longer doing that. That's not a fun way to spend time. Like you only live once, that's six months where, you know, maybe like an on average an hour a day, but some days like five hours, some days nothing. But I had to put a lot of work in and you have to put a lot more work into companies that aren't doing well. And so I decided that's not for me. So I switched my strategy of private investing, yep. which is I only invest if someone smarter than me is investing at the exact same terms as me. So if I'm investing and Peter Thiel or Sequoia Capital is also investing at the same terms as me, I never have to think of that company again. And if it goes out of business, too bad. Peter Thiel, who's much smarter than me, was wrong. Um, but fortunately, I only did a small amount and blah, blah, blah. Or because all these great smart people are in with all their connections and operational experience and so on, uh, I just have to sit back and do nothing. And I know the second, my strategy really is the second the CEO calls me, that's when I know that I, I go to my spreadsheet where I predict all my outcomes and I put zero. The second the really? CEO needs really? my help, yeah, it's a zero. But they might they might think that you're an educated, you know, experienced professional guy call, who's call you know, Peter had 20 Thiel companies. <laughs> call, call, the, call the founder of PayPal and the first investor in Facebook. Oh, yeah, I'm just man. using him as an example. Call the guy who's smarter than me. That's my whole idea. I'll give the same, the same thing works in the stock market and it works really well in the stock market. You know, Warren Buffett files a filing mm -hmm. with the SEC every three months about all the new companies he's invested in. He's required by law to do that. Any hedge fund with more than $100 million is required by law to do that. But nobody, very few people know, know this. It's called a 13F filing. And uh, I look at the 13F filings. Oh, I see. Warren Buffett just, I'm making this up, but Warren Buffett just invested in IBM when IBM was 100. But now there's a slump and IBM's at 70. Oh, I'm going to invest. I get to, it's like Warren Buffett is my intern and I'm investing at a discount to where he is like and it's not like it, you know people have all sorts of opinions i'm i'm trying to avoid opinions it's not like i'm going to run into warren buffett at a cocktail party and say warren warren how could you invest are you stupid how could you invest in ibm at 100 you're an idiot no i'm never going to say that i'm going to say he made a good investment at 100 so i get to piggyback him at 70 this strategy is an amazing strategy for stock market investing so i apply the same thinking okay. for private equity investing. But all that means is really, I don't want to think about it. I don't want to get involved. There are other things I'm interested in. I'm not really interested in quote unquote IBM or, or whatever company, uh, uh, you know, sometimes once a year, I'll try to call up to see, Hey, how are we doing? Because I get nervous. But other than that, I don't want to talk to the CEO. I don't want to, I just want to trust that it's all in good hands.
And then I could focus on the things I'm interested in. And, but, okay. but also the other thing, you say you're still doing this and it's interesting. I think it's a great, for, for people listening to this, I think it's a great strategy. It's an amazing strategy to buy small profitable businesses and then figure out some umbrella to combine them in, like some vertical or horizontal where you're capturing part of the space because then your, your multiple of what the value is over earnings goes up. You get more deals on buying your materials and things like that. It's, it's a brilliant way to invest. And I, this is a failure of mine, but this is in the past year. I tried to buy some online education mobile apps. So like each on flippa.com, you could buy online businesses that are profitable. Yep. And uh, I, was, I was buying a collection of online learning apps and I figured I would combine them and make kind of a, a general like, you know, university of, of mobile apps. And I, it was just, I was doing, I was involved in other activities and it was just too much work for me. And I bought one of the businesses and I just really didn't follow up on it. And it's, I guess it's still going on, but. Uh, so why, why was it a failure? Just because you, well, cause you haven't finished the journey with this yet. Well, it was over a year ago and I really just dropped the ball. Uh, okay. I, I was trying to another business simultaneously. And I was also involved in some other activities and it took more time than I expected. And it required an expertise as I thought I had, but I, I didn't really have. And okay, I understand. So I, I, understand. I guess I could have gotten people to help me, but that also would have required a lot of time and work. And so I lost some money. I bought one of the apps and I just never did anything with it. And I had a deal to buy another app that I backed out of because I realized I was in over my head and uh, it just didn't, it just didn't work out. But I okay. regret it because it was a, it was a good idea. Like online learning is really a good thing. And, and I saw kind of a coherent thread through different mobile apps that I felt I could combine them into one general sort of, you know, university of mobile apps. And most, so most of my career idea. in private equity was in, was in um, ed education technology and online learning. So the last business that we sold when I left private equity was a business called Ascend Learning. We sold it from Providence private equity to Blackstone for 14 times EBITDA. Um, it was about 2.3 billion, but that was 14, 14 businesses rolled up to create yeah. a bigger education play. Um, I think, so I think, and, and, and no one has really done that in the mobile space. Like people have done that in the, the I mean, it's mobile because all of these online sites have mobile apps, but these were purely mobile apps I was buying. They were, there was no site associated with them. And so it's a good idea. And online education, I mean, we saw during the pandemic, yeah, online absolutely. education is everything now. Like I learned so much more from even just YouTube videos than I ever did from my teachers in school. So can I ask, like, when I was preparing to have this conversation with you, right, the, the, I was finding it hard to sort of, and don't take this the wrong way, kind of put you in a box, right? What? <laughs> don't God throw, don't it. throw, don't throw a mic at my head. I'm thinking you, you've got like a lot of different things that you've done, right? And you've kind of got a lot of interests. And, and just to catch up with that is quite fascinating, just by this conversation we've just sure. had. But how, how, do you, how do you decide what you focus on? Well, what do you love doing? Is that it? Simple as that. Simple as that. Like, and you know, you have to try a lot of things to know what you love doing. But yeah, like, okay. what did you love doing when you were a teenager, you know, other than girls and stuff? I still do it. I mean, I, I started playing basketball when I was six years of age and I now still play for my local team. Like, so I'm passionate about that. I've never, I've never right. given that up in any way. Right. So, right. So, so if you wanted to monetize that, let's just, let's just brainstorm. Okay. Yeah, cool. You could create a, a fantasy sports basketball league. You can make a prediction market about basketball. You could do all the, uh, what's it called? The cyber, um, what's it called? The, oh, the e-games. Uh, Sabernetics. Oh, okay. Uh, yeah, yeah. 
you know, you take the online data and 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 use it to predict who they should buy, which players they should trade, which players they yeah. should get, uh, uh, what plays they should call, what positions um, they should put people in, or you could use it for betting or whatever. Um, that's a really exciting area. Like I personally like that area. You could be a, a, a blogger like uh, or you could stream you watching basketball and commenting on it. So you could have, you know, and, and there's there's Twitch streamers making a million a year commenting on sports games. So we could just riff all day on ways to, to I, I know like I'm interested in chess. I know chess players who are not the best chess players in the world. They're like they're they're great chess players, but they're not you know famous for being in the world championship category. But they're making over a million a year streaming you know, lessons and streaming themselves playing and, and so on. Really? Just from there, just because it's their perspective on, on, you know, what they're experiencing and, and people well, are interested in that. I mean, my, yeah, well, like my daughter, everything. I mean, my daughter, for example, just to jump in, she, she's yeah. obsessed with, she's nine and I've got a six year old as well. They love, love watching YouTube of kids playing like Roblox or Minecraft. Yeah. Well, the, the, the one of the kids who start play, started playing those, like this was like 10 years ago or eight years ago. Yeah. There was a kid who was like eight years old. who was making, 20 million a year from just like opening up <laughs> games and playing them for the first time and kids watching them. But I watch, I watch chess players play on Twitch all the time, every single day. I just was watching some this morning. So on the plane ride here, I was watching on my, my phone, um, a, a guy analyzing one of his games and then playing. And it's, it's fascinating. I love it. And that wow. guy makes a million and a half a year. Yeah. So and this, this is the thing, right? You know, you've got more opportunities. We talked about, you know, entrepreneurship when we started this conversation, right? And we said, actually, you know, there's probably more ability now for entrepreneurs to make a bigger change in the world than anything else. And actually probably more so than governments and, and things like that. Right. Oh yeah. We, governments are useless. And I'm yeah. not saying this as a bitter libertarian or whatever, uh, although I, I probably am more aligned with, with that <laughs> than anything, but I'm not in any party, but I don't even think about, uh, uh, governments and change because they're not governments will look at all the change around you. This mic was made by an entrepreneur, not by a government. This zoom was made by, I believe he's an ex Chinese communist party member who moved to the U S and his family's still in China. Zoom is made, you know, by an entrepreneur, like the government never called him up and said, listen, can you really make a way for us to have conferences online? The government didn't do that. And he didn't get any money from the government. He just did this. Now you could argue, well, the government, funded the Department of Defense funded the Internet in the 1960s. OK, that's true. But a guy in Switzerland at a you know nuclear research facility is the one who, who made the web, Tim Berners-Lee. Mm -hmm. So and, and a student at University of Illinois, Mark Andreessen, uh, made the the the, con the modern concept of the browser that we're using. So, you know, it's the, it's the innovationists who create the world, not not the government. And, I, and again, I'm not saying this like, oh, no, know, I'm not. I'm not political. Medicare either, right? sucks. Like, I'm not saying any of that. I'm just seeing a shift. Right. So so what you're seeing now is some of the biggest problems in the world are being are being you know, tackled, if you like, or at least being sort of thought through by by entrepreneurs who are brave enough to go there. Right. And yeah. and, and being those are the ones who are being more creative necessarily. Come So for me, it's not a political thing. It's just, you know, entrepreneurship has the ability to change the world. You could argue that it always has. But I would say that right now, with the access that we have to different things, technologies, the fact that we have, you know, every, everything is like that whole sort of local to global and all that sort of thing means that we have more opportunity than ever. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Like, I remember, you know, a lot of people think if, if you make money and you're an entrepreneur, you're you've done something illegal in some way. And I, I once was in college, I was, <laughs> I was dating someone 
who was arguing with me like to the point of like, I think she threw something at me that you have to do something illegal to, to make money. And it's just not true. And, and to make, yes, there are people who are doing illegal things who make money. Like Bernie Madoff made money for many years and I believe he just died in jail. And that's a miserable way to live. But most entrepreneurs are not like that. Most entrepreneurs solve problems effectively that many people have. The reason they make money is because many people have this problem and good luck to them. Like I'll, I'll give you, an, you know, I just gave you an example of failure. I'll give you an example of, of so far success. So in 2017, um, I was having a miserable, 2016, I was having a miserable time. I had recently gotten divorced. I had decided to throw away all of my belongings and, and live just in Airbnbs. I didn't want to leave any footprint of myself in the world. I wasn't renting. I wasn't owning. I didn't, I only owned enough things that could fit in my carry on bag. And so for a while I stayed with a friend of mine and we were watching on TV. This was tw mid 2016. It was one of these, the shootings, the police got a little too whatever. And they shot someone and there were, there was rioting happening. This was before George Floyd, obviously it was in 2016. Yep. And we were just sitting around thinking, well, what can, what can we, can we solve this problem? And we don't know anything about anything. And we remembered we had invested once in this guy who had made a weapon for the first Gulf War, which was a sonic gun. If, if you're standing, you could be a thousand feet away and I could shoot at you and you will hear such a loud sound that you'll drop to the ground, probably unconscious. And the person sitting one foot from you won't even hear it. And so he, wow. this inventor was a genius with that. So we, we called him up and he said, no, no, I, I don't know how, how to do this at short range. And so he started coming up with another idea and, and we raised money. And at this point, I was only peripherally involved, but I was involved in the initial discussions. He he worked on a, on a device that shoots a steel Kevlar cable. It shoots it out of the weapon and wraps around you and wraps you. And and you can't move. And the more you fight, the, the tighter it gets and it doesn't hurt you at all. So if you're within 21 feet, which is the law, you have to be within 21 feet. And if I say hands up, I'm a policeman, I say hands up and you don't do it. I have no choice. But to right now, before this device was created, I have no choice but to either beat you up or shoot you or taser you, which people die from taser. And so we, so we created this device. It's called the bowler wrap. And now hundreds or even thousands of police departments are starting to use it or are starting to test it. It became a public company. And, it, and every day we get calls like, oh, you saved another life today because someone got wrapped instead of tasered or whatever. So that's, that's an incredible. example where we solved the problem. That's incredible. And, and, but and now I'll tell you the pessimistic, the cynical side of this. Yeah, the question is that entrepreneurs have to ask, what problem did we solve? The problem we thought we were solving, of course, was fewer deaths. And that's a good problem to solve. But the reason I suspect the reason sometimes I think people do buy this for good intentions and good reasons, because you do save lives. But also a lot of cities uh, get sued by police for police malpractice. And, uh, uh, you know, certainly if you're one of these cities, you, you are interested in lowering your costs of lawsuits. So that's another reason to to buy this. But you know, then that's a good use too, because then that money can be put to buy, get more teachers or healthcare workers or firemen or sanitation workers. You know, cities are hard to run. And if you have to spend so much time on lawsuits, then that's a bad thing. So it saves lives and it helps cities. Yeah. So I, this is the thing, right? I think we, we could talk around this topic just in this conversation, but I'm curious to just talk a little bit more about um, 
kind of, you know, there's a question I've been pondering because you you had a pretty interesting sort of transition from sort of, you know, not having a lot of cash to then creating some pretty successful businesses. I know you talk more about the failures that you've had than you do about the successes. But the question I've got for you is when you started writing the books, you've written 20 books, I believe. Yeah, did you write them? Did you? Just 25, to, is it? Not okay. that I'm did, counting. No, that's okay. Well, I, you know, I don't want to downplay it. But the question really is this. Did you write them initially for you? You know, were, were they ways for you to kind of almost cathartic, like, you know, for you to kind of work through some of the things you were going through? Yeah, I mean, look, I always, I always wanted, I lo- probably more than anything else in the world, I always wanted to be a writer. Like in fifth grade, in second grade, I wrote my first play. It was horrible. In, in fifth grade, I was writing a book about all the people in my class and what, what girls and boys they liked. I was like a gossip columnist. And, uh, uh, in, and then, you know, when I was in graduate school for computer science, I just loved, I never took an English class in college or anything. I was a computer science major, but I just loved reading every novel I could find, like every well-written book. And I loved writing every single day. And, um, I just loved it. And, uh, so, so I, I was writing all the time This is starting around 1990 and I never, I couldn't get published. I wrote four novels. I wrote dozens and dozens of short stories, nothing could get published, but that's the beginning of a journey. Like you have to fail at the beginning of a journey. And it wasn't until 2002, I finally had my first article published and it was about finance. So I wrote a couple books about finance, but that to me was a little boring. And so I realized why am I writing about finance? And all the time I've been starting businesses, making money and then going broke. It was like a common theme. I would make millions of dollars. I would lose every penny of it a year or two later. And then I would start over and I was miserable. People thought like, oh, you know, failure is the pathway to success. Failure sucks. Like maybe it's the pathway to success. Maybe it's not. I wish sometimes I just, I do have regrets. Like I wish I had not failed so many times in saving my money or building. Why did that happen, James? Why, why do you think you went through that sort of cycle? Like it feels like it was obviously repetitive from what you just said. Yeah. It happened like four times. And the first time was the worst. Actually the third time was the worst because I was going broke. I was losing a home. I was getting divorced and, and I was outside reading a book and it just started raining. And I'm like, what the hell is happening to me over and over again? I said, I said to myself, I think I'm a smart guy. Like, I'm, I'm, I make a lot of good decisions. I've built these businesses. Why is it happening to me again? And it's very depressing. Like I was pretty much, you know, I didn't know how I was going to get out of the depression. And, you know, there are three skills to making money. It's there's making it, there's keeping it, there's growing it. And so I was good at making it, but I couldn't keep it or grow it. And I kept thinking to myself, I'm getting older. Like I'm not going to do this forever. It's too much stress. And, uh, you know, why, why did it happen? Well, I don't know. I think you think you're good at one thing. Like I was good at building a business and then you think you're good at, that makes you good at everything. You know, as a kind of a bias makes you think you're a genius at everything. So I would invest in these private companies without having, you know, the Warren Buffetts of the world in them. And I would then, you know, and I would invest more than I would invest in bad companies. I would invest more than I should. And, uh, well, those two things basically. You don't and think no you don't think there me. was a you don't think there was a self sabotage here, some sort of mental thing, some sort of pattern. Yeah, I do think there was a self sabotage, but so 
I always try to figure out what is self-sabotage. Like nobody goes out and says, okay, I'm doing well. I need to destroy myself now. <laughs> like no one actually thinks that self-sabotage is this unconscious thing. Yeah, it's an unconscious so I, thing. I, I think I think part of the self-sabotage was I never thought I did well enough. Like I one time, my first company, I made $15 million cash and then I lost every penny of it because I, I didn't think 15 million was enough. It didn't somehow... I didn't, I don't know what I was thinking. I thought like everybody else was doing better than me. And mm. so I needed to make more. And so when you think like this, you, you make, you take bigger risks. You can't make a hundred million dollars from 15 without taking huge, huge risks. So I would invest 2 million of the 15 into some shitty little company and it would disappear. It would just go away. And I, I didn't know how to invest. I didn't know. Again, the biggest thing with investing is risk management. So I didn't know how to manage my risk because I thought I was a genius and I had to learn like a lot of humility about what I don't know and stick to the things I do know. So we all know that investing is a path to wealth, but so that's fine. So invest, but not, once you know that, that's the 1% of, of what you need to know. The rest is 99% of it is reducing risk. And so I didn't understand that equation that it was one to 99, that one is the reward 99 is reducing risk. And I wasn't reducing risk at all. I was increasing risk because, oh, investors and entrepreneurs are risk takers. People don't realize that the best entrepreneurs are risk mitigators. Jeff Bezos didn't start out making a rocket ship company. He started off selling online books. It was easy. So let's just make an online bookseller. And, you know, then he built up. Okay, now let's sell clothes and flowers. And then he built up. Well, let's, let's let other people sell using our infrastructure. And then he scaled up. Well, let's rent out our entire infrastructure, our cloud system, so other entrepreneurs can use our cloud system for storage. And that's uh, billions of profits now. And then he's like, okay, now I did that. Now I'll buy the Washington Post. Now I'll buy, uh, start a spaceship company because there's no risk for him now anymore. So, and this, and this is, uh, this, and this is over, you know, people have to appreciate this is over 20 years as well, right? You know, when Amazon started off, you know, as that book company, I remember like, you know, a lot of people said back then it might not even last. I was in the publishing game back then. I was in media. I was like, you know, what's this Amazon thing, right? And then there's a, there's a, there's a couple of lessons there. One is, one is, you know, the the point of just sticking at it, right? And yeah. you use the term in your book, you know, getting 1% better, not trying to throw the Hail Mary pass, right? You know, not, not trying to put everything under one thing that could work because that's not a smart strategy. It could work, but chances are it's not going to. No, no, chances are it's not. And that's just statistics. Mm. You should, everyone should understand that, Yes, your, your natural talents and your genius will help you, but there's also then a big 50% luck in everything. Are you at the right place at the right time? Is the economy going to slump? That's the other thing too. I thought everything I invested in was going to flip in six months and I'd make millions of dollars. Yeah. But the reality is <laughs> I, the best businesses you invest in, they're, they're in it for the long run. Like I'm in one investment now where the investment's doing well, but they don't want to IPO. They're, they're doubling. They, I've been in this investment for 12 years. Like I invested my money in 2009 and I'm like, when are you guys going to IPO? And they're like, why should we IPO? We're doubling every year. But once we're a stock, we're not going to, we're probably not going to double every year. Like the stock market goes up 10% a year. So, so they don't want to IPO and I don't want to get my money out because they're doubling every year still. And I don't know, but you have to be patient and wait for the Is best. Is that why you, um, ever. Is that why you said beforehand, again, when we were speaking about it, that now if you invest, 
you know, you said you don't want to be thinking about too much. You want to kind of put your money in when there's someone in there who's got a better track record or someone that you think oh, yeah. is- Oh yeah, well, I'm in this one with Benchmark. So okay, and they're, right. they're the first investors in eBay. So, and I got lucky. I just knew someone who knew someone and this is an Israeli company in cybersecurity, which is where cybersecurity is the, is the best in the world. And and they're in cloud stuff and all that. And uh, yeah, someone from Benchmark, I just sort of ran into him and I said, do you have room for just a little bit more money? And he's like, sure. And so I went in with Benchmark and then I actually convinced, um, what was it? Uh, uh, the Rockefeller family VC fund, I forgot what it's called, maybe Ray Rock or something like that. And uh, I convinced them to invest also. And so I'm in with a lot. Of, I never have to be involved at all in the company. I'm in with a lot smarter people. But every now and then I wonder like, hey, I got to make money before I die on this. So, well, listen, I, you know, if you're in that sort of thing, someone's going to realize the value at some point. I mean, I to the point around the sabotage comment, right? I, I, I had a pattern myself, right? Which was every time I tried to start a business, uh, it didn't go very well. And then when I got employed and had, you know, reasonably senior jobs, I'd get sacked, right? So that was the pattern. So, and that happened repeatedly, like a lot, both, both things. So I'm jumping from both to both. And well, why'd I, you get, why'd you, why were you getting fired? Because I had this, this disdain for authority, but more importantly, maybe I thought if I'm being honest with you, maybe I thought I was smarter, <laughs> Yeah. whether that's true or not. Right. You know, I, I probably had that ego thing happening back then do, do, like so you knew there was this pattern of you getting fired because probably you were being you know smart and making suggestions and and the bosses perceived you as being arrogant or something and so so you knew that if you just switch this one habit you would succeed at the job but this is a self-sabotage you chose not to do that because you almost wanted to prove to yourself you're going to get fired every job and that you're meant to be an entrepreneur or on your own somehow that's right. And so, so then I found a lane within entrepreneurship. I love the way we started the conversation by saying there isn't just one path, right? I found a lane within entrepreneurship that fit a, my skill set, what I wanted to be in terms of my identity. Um, and also, you know, something that I'd feel was closer to my purpose. So what, what, like, what companies do you buy? Like what sector? So I, I, I buy across a whole heap, but I look for exactly, I look for the the, the roll-up strategy, right? So I look yeah. to, to I look to bring businesses together. So at the moment, we're looking at things like landscaping businesses, security businesses, and cleaning businesses. That are it. Yeah, that sort of thing. They're already selling into, let's say, gated housing communities, right? Um, so how can, we, how can we make that a synergistic play? And then, you know, we might buy those, as you said, for three or four times EBITDA, but then we know we can sell them as a group when the, um, the profit is up for, you know, anywhere from sort of eight times upwards. So that's that that's, that's such a low risk way to do entrepreneurship. I love it because a people need security more than ever. Like, uh, yes, yep. the technology is evolving. So you have to make sure the companies you buy are up with the technology, but assume they are, um, they're very much mom and pop when they start off. So it's like in London, there might be one thing and in St. Louis, Missouri, there might be another company and, and so on. So you could buy them up, uh, geographically, you combine them into one brand and one umbrella, and now you have a million customers. So investors give you a higher EBITDA multiple because you're big enough to be on the stock market and so on. Yep. So not only are you growing, pro when you buy them, you get synerg synergies by when people move, they switch to the same company or when, or you get better deals on materials because now you're buying for a million customers instead of a thousand customers. So you get higher, you grow your profits and you grow the multiple. And if one of the businesses go out of business, no big deal because you own a hundred of them. So you could That's right. have another one come in and just replace the company that that fails. And 
it's just a it's just a safe, easy way. If I were a young 21 year old seeking to go into uh, entrepreneurship, that this is the path I would try to take. Now, I wouldn't have money. So how am I going to buy the, the companies? Well, that's when you identify like three or four good investments and then you just you, 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 here's what you do. I'm going to outline it and man, you can tell me if I'm right or wrong. No, no, I want to hear, I want to hear you say it. Let's go for it. Here, here's what I would do <laughs> if I was 22 years old. And, and, and I, and I realized this was a good, safe way to, uh, invest. So I, and let's just keep using laundromats as an example. Yeah. Perfect. Um, or, or security companies. I like security companies, home security. So I would find three or four companies out there where their owners were ready to sell. Maybe they're getting older. Maybe they got a divorce. Maybe they're sick. Yep. whatever. Uh, or maybe they just want to sell. And I would try to buy them for two times EBITDA. I would get a, a signed letter of intent where if I come up with the money within 90 days, I could, I, I could buy them and they can't sell to anyone else. And now I have a real asset. So without any money, I have, let's say three LOIs. Those are real assets. I could, it means I'm contractually the, the other people are contractually obligated to sell for me, to sell to me within 90 days if I come up with the money. So now I go to investors. I have this asset, these three LOIs. Yep. They're selling for two times EBITDA. Industry average is three times EBITDA. But if I combine these three, it's four times EBITDA. So you double your money the day this closes. And I'm going to buy more and get up to like 10 times EBITDA. And I'm, here's ways I'm going to grow the earnings. If you pitch enough investors, some of them are going to say yes. And boom, you're in business. Do you want to come teach you my mastermind? <laughs> sure. That's you have just, you have just, it's, it's, everything you just said is what I do. Exactly that, right? So, so for me, right, because, you know, you go out there, there's a lot of money. We, private equity, we probably didn't go deep enough into it. You've got family offices, you've got individual people, yeah. you know, it's kind of a broad church for just where you've got private, private investment. So, you know, there's a lot of people out there who want to put their money into something that makes more sense. And, and for me, like, you know, going and buying businesses off people retiring, you know, and, and you've, you would have seen the stats, it's all over the place, how many, the whole, the baby boomer transition, right? All these good profitable businesses that are getting closed down and they are getting closed down because I see it every day. There's a bit here where you're actually helping as well, right? You're getting your, you can make wealth from it, but you can also kind of, you know, make these businesses that potentially going to get closed down, have another lifeline. So there is a- yeah, 70% of businesses just shut down. Yeah. There's no succession Even plan. Even if they're profitable. Like, no, exactly. And and you go to these people and I speak to these people daily, right? People in their 60s or 70s, and sometimes they have got traumatic things going on. And and you say, what's the plan? And they say, well, listen, you know, my, my kids are off doing other things. My grandkids want to be YouTube stars. I've got nowhere to put this business. I want to make sure Doris, who's been in the business for 20 years, you know, running accounts has a job. And I just want to make sure that my legacy is protected. And, yeah. you know, you can get these businesses, as you said, two, three, four times EBITDA. That's a good you know, please, and you can pay for them, you know, what's called leverage buyouts. I'm sure you know all about this seller yep. finance where you pay the businesses off over time from the profits of the company. And then any, any differential in that, you can either put your own cash in if you've got it, or just go get an investor who's going to back you to, to run that business and do it. So, well, yeah. And you, you, you just added a, a key component to any kind of class on this, which is seller financing is a big part of this. You could say to them, look, I'll pay you, I'll pay you two times EBITDA, or I'll pay you three and a half times EBITDA, but over time. And they'll of course say yes, because it's a higher number. And, and like you said, as you're increasing the profits, you're just paying them out of your profits. So it costs you zero. Like you could basically buy, this almost sounds like a cliche commercial. You could buy a business with nothing, with $0, but that's how it works. And these are yes. real world situations. And in the flip side is they just shut down the business, which again, most, that's how most businesses end. Not the sexy businesses like the tech companies, but 
a laundromat or a home security company or whatever. Exactly. And, you know, and, and, and what I will say is in, the, in those years of private equity, I did 117 acquisitions and 25 exits, right? Wow. Every single one of those acquisitions, every single one was a leveraged buyout. It, none of it was like, I'm going to turn up, you know, James, you've got a great business. Here's all your money on day one. It, it was always leveraged in some way with debt or I was going to pay you over time or an earn out or something, right? So, yeah. so this sort of stuff that we're talking about here isn't just for the big guys. It's absolutely what happens, you know, all over the and, place. And now look at like, so crypto adds a whole new level of business models with, you can not only do a leverage buyout, but you can tokenize part of the business. So yeah. I can, you know, create a tradable token, which represents partial ownership in a business uh, or the future cash flows of business, not even the business itself. But if you buy one of these tokens, maybe it access you to part of 10% of the future cash flows of the business for the next 10 years. So that's a, a new kind of financing that's going to- That's an area that I haven't- model. That's a, that's fascinating because that's an area that I've looked at. But because I, I'm really conservative sometimes, I only like to to bet on things that I can understand. It's just how I am, right? But I've looked at NFTs. I still don't quite understand it. Like, yeah, I mean, I think that's an inning zero. I have not seen a business model yet doing this with crypto, but it will happen. Yeah. Because think of, do you know what the Bowie bonds are? Yeah, I've heard of, again, I've, I've touched very, I haven't gone deep on anything, but I know broadly what most of it is, yeah. Yeah, so roughly like 20 years ago, David Bowie needed some cash as sometimes people do so he sold off 10 years of the future royalties of his main albums um he didn't sell it off he borrowed against the future royalties of his albums nobody had ever done this before and so that's why they're called the bowie bonds he borrowed yeah. 700 million dollars and your interest would be would come from you, you would get the full 700 million back in 10 years but the interest was based on a percentage of his future royalties well david bowie did great over the next few years in the, the people who bought these bonds made a huge interest rate and it was very successful. And so the same thing's gonna happen with crypto, except it's gonna be not structured as bonds, but structured structured as currencies made off of, you know, backed by the future cash flows of a business or a house or your your job or whatever. Like let's say I'm a graduating college student and I have a huge amount of student loan debt. Well, this is a problem. Student loan debt is trillions of dollars now. Students can't pay it back. Well, what if I what if I, you know, tokenize 10% of my future earnings? So I will sell off 10% of my next 10 years of earnings. Now people could judge based on my background and, and where I went to school and what sort of interests I have, what my future earnings will be. And they can make a bet. Oh, do they think it's worth this or do they think it's worth that? And they'll pay what they think it's, it's worth. How does that, I mean, how does that, I don't want to go into too many tangent topics here, even though I'm loving this conversation. <laughs> how does that work with like, so the whole hedge fund play anyway? Because I mean, you're, you're effectively hedging against an expected outcome, yeah? Yeah, so, so okay, let's, let's say you, I, 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 you know, I know that you like to buy these businesses and, and I say, look, I will give you X amount of dollars for 10% of the profits you make from all of your activities. I know you're going to be actively doing this for 10 years. I will pay pay X amount of dollars for X percent of your future earnings from these things. So I'm not an investor in a fund. I'm not uh, lending you the money. I'm just getting 10% of your cash flows from your uh, investments over the next 10 years. And it might replace the hedge fund business. It might, it might replace the private equity business. It might replace mm. the, the bond lending business. And then let's say someone else invests in another guy because it's a currency I could trade now. Oh, I've got this guy, Nick. I could, I'm going to trade it for this guy, James, some of his tokens. So I'm diversified. So it's going to be a whole new mm. asset class.
Yeah, fascinating. Yeah, no, I'm, I, I I'm predicting that. this. This hasn't happened yet. No, 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 but no. But I think I think you're right though, and 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 it's kind of like you're starting to see elements of this happen now. You know, you're starting to see that sort of thing because you know when um what was it Bitclout started to play around, you know, and people were getting invested in, you know, yeah. that I that was. I should look at that site. I, I people keep telling me to look at that site. I don't know if it's doing well or not. Yeah, I haven't been on there for a while. It came off the back of a lot of people talking about it on Clubhouse and things like that, and then everyone started going on there, putting crazy money in and. Again, it started to get like a bit silly for me. So so I just yeah. went back to buying businesses. I thought, you know, I'm just going to do that. <laughs> well, I think what you're doing is is the best way for someone to enter into entrepreneurship. You know, and then later on, if you have like a brilliant idea, start your own company, whatever. But this is a good, solid way. By the way, you could use this for real estate investing, the exact same technique. Or you could yeah. use it for, um, I don't know, what, what, any any industry. It's great. If, if it's a good... So you either you either find a problem that nobody has solved and that's a great business to build, but it's very difficult to know what problems haven't been solved. It's much more difficult than people think. So our example is the the wrap concept, that device. But uh, uh, the other thing is you could you could piggyback off of a problem that, you know, there's a, everybody needs solved, like cleaning your laundry or home security. That's a problem for hundred years. Everyone's been using home security companies to solve this problem. So um, you're piggybacking off of somebody else creating the demand for that. I went as far as saying, James, that, and this is probably a little bit too simplistic, but I like simplistic, right? I said, there's two types of entrepreneurs, right? There's an, the entrepreneur, you know, and again, we can kind of go into dimensions, but there's the entrepreneur who, who likes to create something, right? And there's the entrepreneur who likes to fix up something that has been created and take it to the next stage, right? So they're both entrepreneurs. It's different. I used, to, I used to say when I was the kid and I got my Lego, right? When I was when I was younger, I, I would get out the instructions and I'd build the thing to a level of precision, right? You, I, I couldn't turn it into anything other than what the instructions said, right? But then there's the other type, you know, my, you know, my, my brother or whatever, who would get it and he'd make this masterpiece out of all the different colorful things. <laughs> You know what I'm saying? And so that's a great and, analogy. And you know what? I'm going to write that. I'm going to, you mind if I take some notes? I'm oh yeah. Yeah. Down. It's just, I, I put a lot of thought into this because I remember this is where I went for my sort of, you know, when I was trying to start businesses and they didn't work, I thought, why isn't it working? Because I, I, I wasn't the guy, you know, and this is probably a game that I could see the problem in, in the absolute clarity. And I, I didn't have the energy to then go after that. I wasn't driven by that. What I was driven by was taking something and going, you know what? I can fix that. I can optimize it. I can make it. I can take it to the next stage. And that's when I described beforehand about where you find your lane. Yeah, I, I, I like that a lot. And I think I think within that, of course, like you said, there's it, it, sim simplicity is good, by the way. So it's good that you gave a simplistic description, but obviously there's categories within yeah. categories. So uh, 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 there, there's the optimizer, there's the innovator, there's the roll-upper, and they're all overlap, but... Uh, you know, and there's a few more categories too, but I'm sure uh, you could take this into it. You could turn this into a really good book. Whereas I could probably yeah, just do it. I could do it as a PDF. <laughs> right. There's the deal maker. Sometimes a good entrepreneur is simply just really great at doing deals. Yeah, I agree. Um, so like, you know, as opposed to me paying cash for a laundromat, there's the guy who does the leverage buyout and then seller financing and, yeah. you know, well, the person in the middle company real quickly, the, the person it, in the flow of the money, the person who kind of, you know, sits in there and takes a piece of it, but actually doesn't do any of it. <laughs> that's, that's a, that's a skill in its own right. Yeah. And then, you know, there's the person who knows where money is like, there's the good fundraiser. So yeah. like money, money flows uh, and knowing putting yourself in the flow is, is key to entrepreneurship. So, you know, and understanding where the velocity of money is. So that's a more economic kind of entrepreneur. 
but uh, there is a book here. I tell you, there's a really good book here, or, yeah. or, or definitely a podcast episode or a keynote. <laughs> by, by the way, this is interesting because this is why, like, often academics think that they're they could be very good entrepreneurs because they're very smart, but because they don't understand business, they often turn out to be very poor entrepreneurs. And you hardly ever see a professor become a Forbes 100, you know, CEO. No, uh, not it's, that they it's can, rare. they are very smart, but it's very difficult. Yeah, you've got to, I mean, this is where I, what I experienced from, like, as I said, you know, I was around the guys who had the the, the great business school um, credentials, but, you know, sometimes you've just got to be in the game to see how it's played, right? And it's the it's the feelings that you get as well as what you experience that makes the difference in terms of what you decide to do. Um, well, this, that's a very interesting concept too, because like I could read, I could read a book about tennis and see how all the great, let's say it's a book just interviewing every great tennis player about their serve. And I could read it all and I can watch videos and I can, and I could say, well, I'm going to be great at serving, but then you get out into the tennis court and you're back at day one. Like you have to now do it. Now you might know some things that other people don't know. Your knowledge and depth of understanding of the serve might be great, but you can't do it until you do it. No, no I agree. I fund fundamentally agree with that. And, and there's a piece where like, you know, I mean, we didn't touch on any of your books, but I'm going to mention them anyway. <laughs> but I know that your latest one um, skipped the line and we probably need a whole nother conversation to go into this. You know, you are challenging the whole idea of the 10,000 hours rule as well within this. But for me, like, you know, you've got to, you've got to experience and you've got to put some practice in. I mean, if I think about what I did at the very beginning of my career in this space, right, and some of the decisions I made, they were all interesting things that got me to where I've got to and what I do now. However, it was those hours and hours and hours of being in the trenches that gave me different perspectives. Well, 117 acquisitions and 25 exits, that is a huge amount of expertise and knowledge. And you have, you have a, a repertoire of techniques. And I don't know if you think about it in terms of repertoire. Mm, a repertoire is like your, your tool chest of, of, of skill. Like given a certain pattern, you know what to do. Like you have, you have a tool that fits that pattern. And, you know, CEO just died or the CEO stole some money or the CEO is growing huge, but doesn't know how to exit. You, you recognize these patterns. You've seen them before and, and you have a, a, a tool to, to deal with them as opposed to making it up, which making something up takes energy, takes time, takes massive amounts of physical energy and mental energy and emotional energy. Stress so as well. You, yeah, and stress. So if you already know, have the tools in your toolkit to, to deal with that, that's insanely valuable. And most people don't have that. I like the word repertoire. I might use that. <laughs> yeah. I think about it in the context of chess. Like what's your opening repertoire? What are the first yeah. set of moves you use? But it's useful for the word repertoire. I think of in a lot of different situations. So listen, this has been fun, right? You know what I, I, what I said at the beginning, I wasn't mucking around, but I said, it's hard to sort of say, you know, if I'm going to describe who James Altucher is, it's hard to do it because you've, you've got, you do lots of different things, man. Right? So, yeah. and, we, and I think we gave a really nice snapshot of that today just by where the conversation went. I, I had a great time, man. Actually yeah, better than too. I expected. So much. And I knew it was going to be fun. What's one question for you. What's next on the agenda for James Altucher? What are you working on? Well, uh, Unfortunately, too many things. Ah, I knew that um, would be the answer. That's why <laughs> I could I have said, what's the one because, thing? <laughs> um, well, there's several one things. Do you mind if I say a few of them? No, please do. I mean, I'm not trying do. to promote them because- No, no, listen, I, I, I'm just curious. I mean, I think people have got a good understanding of the fact that you kind of get involved in a lot of stuff. So I'm just curious by asking the question. Yeah, so so I am I am working on, on developing a company. It's been a year and a half in the making. I thought it would be quick development, but it turns out to be a really difficult problem. And uh, 
So we're using Zoom right now to, to broadcast this podcast. But Zoom, if you took this video and put it on YouTube, it's too low quality for YouTube to promote it. Yeah. And there's other problems with Zoom as well, which I won't get into right now. But I'm 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 creating a Zoom beater that at the very least will have superior technology and and I'm adding some social media features. So it's going to have uh, we could, for, for instance, I could have announced we're doing this podcast live and we could have had a whole audience uh, watching and asking questions if you had allowed and, and, and so on. Yeah, so well, I, I definitely need well. that. Like, I mean, I'll yeah, say I, I need that capability for the stuff I'm doing with my stuff. So there you go. You've got to. <laughs> well, and also Zoom doesn't record the audio on both sides. Some competitors do, but they're missing other things. But, you know, the audio quality is, is spotty with Zoom. And uh, uh, so I'm working on that. I'm also working on uh, another thing, which um, uh, I always tell people, write down 10 ideas a day. And people say to me, you know, to improve your creative exercise, your creativity. And people ask me, do you keep track of your ideas? And I say, no, because the whole point is just exercise. Like if I'm right. weightlifting, I don't keep track of like, oh, I had I had 10 really good weightlifts the other day, so I don't have to do it anymore. Like it's just exercise. But enough people have asked me over the past 20 years, is there a software to keep track of your ideas? And I'm like, no, no, no I don't want to do that. But now I do want to do it and enough people have asked. So I'm creating that. But then there's a social media aspect, which is I can search other people's ideas. I could add to other people's ideas. I could follow people's ideas and there's a little bit of competitiveness in it. Or I could challenge people to come up with ideas for me and they could benefit somehow if they if I accept the challenge, if, if they do well in the challenge. So I'm working on some software for that. And and that's already done. I'm going to release that any day. Oh, great. And, and, and actually, November, November 1st, I'm expecting to release the Zoom competitor or, or shortly after that. And um, uh, I've also been playing a lot of chess. So I'm trying I, I was a I started being a chess master back in 1997 when I was in my 20s. And I want to get I want to get that good again or better, but it's a different world. And so I'm I, I, I've loved the game since I was a kid. And so I spent some time with that. I, ju I just came back from my first tournament in 24 years. And uh, and I played okay, but not great, like much worse than I thought. And so did you did you did you do okay though, considering? I mean No, I did worse than I did much worse than I thought. But it's and I'm good fast player, it's called a blitz player. I'm a good blitz player, but this is the first time I played long games in 24 years. Like two or three of my games lasted over five hours. And so I realized, oh, this is this is a different way of thinking than I'm used to. And the kids now are machines like they're they use computers to train, which you, they weren't they weren't computers better than us back then. And uh, so it's just a different culture, a different environment. And I have to even and, and also I'm older. So my calculating is not as good. My memory is not as good. So it's 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 a fascinating experience to relearn something I w learned once before but in a new way, in a new culture, and in, with new techniques. And it's something I've loved since I was a kid. So I want to, I always want to exceed at it. So it was, it was disappointing, but fascinating. And, you know, and I always, I was telling my wife later, um, she said to me, I was a little sad about after one of the losses where I felt I should have won. And I called her up and I was a little upset. And she said, you know, think of it as the arc of the hero. The, the hero is always reluctant in the beginning. You were going into this thinking it was the end of the story and you were the hero already, but you had never, you had not been the reluctant hero yet on this journey. So now you're entering <laughs> the, nice. the arc of the hero. And I said, okay, yeah, I, I would have preferred being the hero in the beginning, but 
just wasn't true. So and- to give you just some quick inspiration, like, so I said, I still, I still play basketball, right? And I used to be pretty good when I was younger and I play with all these guys. I'm 47. I play with these guys who are like 25. And um, I, when I started playing back again, I was terrible, right? And I thought I was going to be good because I used to be good. But then after sort of losing a little bit of weight, training, I ended up going to the, it was the semifinal, not the grand final, when I scored 27 points and uh, and we won that game. And then we ended up wow. winning. That's so huge. there's a bit of inspiration of like, you know, probably to exactly what your wife was describing. <laughs> How long did it take you from the point you started training again and uh, and the point where you, you know, got the 27 uh, points? It was under a year, but about nine months. But I got quite intentional about it. I thought, you know what, I'm going to try, I'm going to see as a 47 year old guy where, you know, I can't play how I used to play. I can't, you know, I never used to be able to jump, but, you know, I, I can shoot. So I'm going to work on my shooting. I'm going to work on the things that I can do now with a few limitations to my physicality. And yeah, that's how it worked. So there you go. Yeah, Isn't right. That? You have to work with your new limitations. And and what you have, what you've gained is you you gain wisdom, hopefully, and 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 experience and knowledge. And you know, now after this first tournament, people always say you learn the most from your losses. And so I have a, a trainer and he's been dying for me to play in a tournament. He says, Trust me, it's a different experience. And you have to analyze the only way to really improve is to analyze your games in depth and then do it with me or whatever. And uh and you learn more from your losses. So I, I now I have a treasure trove of, of losses and <laughs> games to analyze. I wish you all the best on the journey. I'm sure you'll get back to something that's acceptable to you. <laughs> yeah. Even if that even if that means you get to the grand final against some guy who's like been, you know, his brain's got a chip in it because, <laughs> you know, whatever and, else. And the other thing I'm doing is um, I'm writing a, I've done this before. I have some experience doing this and I've, I've worked on TV shows before, but I'm, I'm writing a, a screenplay. I had a, a, an idea for a screenplay oh, cool. about a, a, a corrupt podcaster. I'll, I'll leave it at that. Oh, wow. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Well, I think that's, that's the next journey for podcasting, isn't it? <laughs> yes, it could be. <laughs> oh man. Well, listen, this has been so much fun, James. So if people want to reach out to you, I've got jamesaltitude.com is your website. Yeah, just um, altitude at gmail.com. I don't even go to jamesaltitude.com. So just altitude at gmail. Oh, perfect. Okay. And um, and as I said, you've got about 25 books. You've got a great podcast. So if people want to kind of explore more about you, they can kind of go and yeah, Google, Google Google James. I'm, I'm big on Google Earth. <laughs> ah, if you find okay. me on Google Earth, I'll be very impressed. Okay. You should put a prize up for that. There's a game yeah, in there somewhere. Funny. Okay. Listen, mate, it's been awesome. Thank you so much for coming on the show. Thank I've you, Nick. I really mentally. appreciate it. Yeah, excellent. Have a great day, buddy. See ya. You too. Hey, thank you for listening to this episode of Scale Up with Nick Bradley. If you've enjoyed the show just as much as I've enjoyed creating it for you, then I'd really appreciate you leaving a five-star review wherever you listen to your podcasts. And while you're there, why not subscribe to the channel so you never miss a future episode? It really helps me, it helps the show, plus it makes it easier for others to access the content that I'm producing week in and week out. And finally, if you want more information about anything that you heard in today's show, to find out how you can join our community on Facebook or to find out how you can get more help in scaling up your business and your life, click the link in the show notes now.